Welcome to All Things Thor with Tom Thor Thordarson. This episode, part six, Becoming an Imagineer, where Tom continues his tale of working on the Journey to the Center of the Earth attraction for the Tokyo Disney Sea theme park. I'm not going to say much other than it's an epic story. It's been great so far, and we can't wait to hear the next chapter. So I'll hand it over to Tom. Let him take it away. Well, it's nice to be back and um, continue. This is going to be episode six on Becoming an Imagineer. And I hope it's starting to get interesting for you. So, um, the one thing about Imagineering, um, or should I say Imagineering a ride or an attraction, is that, you know, it's without question a team effort. Um, There's a lot of disciplines and a lot of knowledge that have to all come together and negotiate something that is a dream that becomes a reality. And... So about this time, I'm continuing here to start developing the story in my mind of how this ride is going to unfold. And I start thinking about what life forms are going to be in here. You know, what what am I going to take that's literally from the story and what things am I going to make up myself? And um, so again, I start I start um, coming up with this world in my brain uh, that in my head has a, re- a believable scientific context that is on steroids, you know, with with a healthy pinch of fantasy. Uh, but yeah, I, I realized that, you know, all the scenes that I were developing um, eventually were going to be um, changing because as, you know, they're building as uh, they're building this 130 some foot volcano uh, that this ride is going to be inside of. And uh, there's going to be structure that appears that the engineers decide need to go through different areas. And as the as the ride is laid out and kind of snaked inside this giant cone, um, there's going to be different corners and things that I I have no way of predicting, but I'm going to have to take all my imagination that's in my head now that I think a scene is going to look like, and I have to be open-minded to adapting it to the, structure as it unfolds that it all has to fit inside of so i just keep drawing i just treat i just keep conceptualizing and thought to myself well i'm just going to um i'm just going to believe that i'm going to find ways to make this work um that's one of the most important things that a lot of people don't realize um in more recent companies that i've consulted with uh that are that get hung up on technology and want to immediately start doing um uh digital models you know 
for the architecture and everything and stick it in a box and, and, um, you know, just make, make the artist, uh, fit this stuff inside this structure that, that doesn't know yet what's going to be inside of it. And, you know, the, if you look back on the classic Imagineers, um, the guys who created Disneyland, the Mark Davises, the Herbie Reimans, all that. Look at their concept art. And this was my, uh, you know, argument all the time. That, that they're creating an experience to be the foundation of what we want the viewer, our audience, or person riding in a ride to feel but there's so many different ways of doing it um to get that experience i mean you have to be creative on how to get that illustration that painting that looks epic um and yet you're given a room half the size or with funny beams coming columns dropping through the middle of areas you thought were going to be open scenes you have to really be creative in how you um, work around those things. So, um, but that's okay. You know, that's that's just the way it goes. And it actually can be kind of fun sometimes um, to try to work those problems out. So at this time, while all this was happening at the same time, the architectural and engineering structuring and everything, and I continued to do my pitches of what I thought the ride was going to be like to upper management. Uh, Michael Eisner and all those guys would pop into the Maple Building for um, uh, progress reviews onto where we were going with this. So did the Oriental Land Company. And um, so, you know, I was already going through this ride in my brain so many times that I felt like I had ridden it for real. And each time I, I told the story to people and showed them my drawings, I would look at areas and think of how I was going to accomplish what that picture showed. You know, um, yeah, I, I can draw. I mean, I can draw really well and I can paint, but that's not enough. Um, in this role, you, uh, you have to be able to also be thinking how this is going to transfer into the three dimensional world and really be something, you know, something tangible. Um, but I, I started getting some really motivational feedback from, from everybody. Um, everyone, including, uh, Marty Sklar, uh, you know, the, at that time, the, the president of uh, Walt Disney Imagineering um, was impressed. I mean, they they loved loved it. Um, they loved what I had come up with, uh, the, the feeling of it. The and they just kept just giving me like thumbs up, like just keep going, you know, keep going. And so I just kept going. And uh, he. I became obsessed with this. Um, I, I'd sit there in my office and play all kinds of crazy music, and it just—it looked like Grandpa Munster's uh, laboratory basement had exploded. 
because I had so many drawings and so many little study maquettes started, you know, in clay. I was starting to figure out um, what the creatures were going to look like. And since I can sculpt, I was sculpting creatures and they call them maquettes. And um, I was just having a ball. I mean, I, I just was having such a ball. And um, so, um, you know, the, 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 the scenes were so exciting. I mean, the subterranean sea, you know, a cave that has an ocean in it. It's supposed to look so vast and huge and the giant mushroom forest and, and um, uh, the crystal caverns. And, and then I came up with all these other additional scenes that never made it were edited out later because we had to keep the ride a certain length. But I remember one I, I called the um, cavern of the winds. And um, you went through this one sort of bridge-like rock structure in your ride vehicle kind of precariously. And um, it, it dropped all around you. You're in this, in the middle of this cavern um, going across this rocky bridge structure. And there was all these other lava tube holes in the, in the walls all around you that were at a distance. And, the idea I had was that, you know, it was real breezy and windy in there and that the, 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 the hot air caused by all the volcanic activity and everything was blowing through all of these um, smaller lava tubes. So the Cavern of the Winds was um, this experience where all this, as I said, volcanic um, rushing of air coming out of these different size lava tube holes that were all around you they would make noise like like giant um you know um horns and tubas and wind instruments that were that were filled with different uh notes of um deep notes and some higher pitch notes depending on the size of the lava tube perforations that they were coming out of and so as you're going through this windy warm giant cavern and the and this wind was blowing all over from different directions it was this symphony of natural music um and tones and vibrato and it was going to be really cool you know uh, cavern of the winds that never happened <laughs> but um I, it was another many of many scenes that i came up with uh and um so um I, that then you know i, I again I, I started to think about all these different creatures and and what would exist down there and, and also i'm thinking about lighting and everything and I wanted it to be exciting. And so I had read um, that there were actual caves that had um, a lot of phosphor phosphorescent um, activity and things in them. Uh, 
glowworms. There was a, I saw a picture in National Geographic of these glowworms that were stuck to the ceiling of this cave, and they created this weird, almost like starscape. But they were these little, there, there were these like caterpillars that glowed. This strange greenish glow. And so I got excited about the idea of, okay, this, this is where my interesting lighting is going to come from. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that a lot of what we're seeing, in addition to the lava we'll eventually get to later in the ride, glowing, it's warm glows and it's hot molten um, reds and yellows and stuff, that this, that this phosphorus and phosphorescent creatures, um, we're going to have all these be beautiful, cooler, gem-like to tones and colors, you know, that would glow, um, you know, violets and um, uh, uh, aqua greens and um, rich blues that looked almost like the phosphorus you see in the ocean when the waves are breaking on just that right night when the phosphorus is in the ocean water. And um, so I started to design these creatures with that in mind. And I just made up these creatures, but I tried to make them believable. And I remember it was so funny because the project coordinator, of course, would, we'd have meetings every couple of days and the project coordinator was documenting all this stuff. And so that they could eventually be listed out, you know, for estimation and things like that. So you got, so you had to have a name for the different creatures. So I remember just pulling these names out of my head. There was, if I can remember some of them, uh, the moss plucking skank, S K E N K, I guess, which was this really, really weird creature. You know, like a cross between a, a mammal and something else um, that would get underneath the giant mushrooms and and pick at the moss and the gills of the mushrooms as its food source and and then there was a flying nudibranch which was like a shell like creature um, that actually had wings <clears throat> that could fly and then land on the sides of the walls of the caves um, oh there were these giant Venus flytrap-like things. And then my favorite one was what I called the leaping tripedal beetle. <laughs> and um, it basically, I, I don't know how to explain it because you, you'll never have seen anything like this before, but it was very <clears throat> insect-like in, in its body. And you can see pictures of this online. I'll tell you where. Uh, eventually um and uh but it had like you know three long spindly legs and the thing was about three to four feet tall each one and they would leap up and down they kind of boing boing and you'd see them in this one scene, you know, and, and part of their body had glowing membranes and everything. So you'd see the, at first you saw these glowing, strange shapes popping up and down. And then you realize them when you got closer, it was a group of leaping tripedal beetles. And um, I had suggested how to make it do that. 
<clears throat> by using a um, an actuator behind them, like a boom, a boom that a rod, I'll just, you can call it, that was connected to the back of them on a on an axis so that um, they stayed par parallel um, when they leaped up in the air, they didn't leap back, even though this rod was was moving, pitching up and down. They they looked like they were just leaping in the air and coming down, and then their legs would bend when they touched the ground, like they were supporting themselves. Then they would leap up again, and their legs would extend out, you know, like a kangaroo. <clears throat> and again, I went to the uh, the guys who were um, engineering the the effects and and the, and and some of the uh, animatronics. Um, and um, I did these, all these drawings explaining all this and how I theorized it could be done. I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I have a pretty good mind for a lot of that stuff. So I would always, you know, say, hey, this is my idea. If you have a better idea, let me know. But if, what do you think of this way of doing this? And, uh, and, and many times they would say, this is awesome. We can work with this. This definitely can be done. And so again, I just I just did <clears throat> tons of drawings about the of the animations of these creatures, how they would move, um, how the um, moss plucking skank when he was chewing. When you walked by, you saw one in the foreground with, and 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 it would be chewing um, a piece this big strand of moss and I didn't want a mouth that just opened and closed like a puppet I wanted it to look like it was grinding this the way if you've ever watched a um, a giraffe uh, uh, eat uh, or, or a cow <clears throat> they kind of their their lower jaw kind of goes in a semicircle, you know and that could because they're they're pulverizing you know and uh so I even talked about that. Let's can we actuate this thing so that it looks like it's chewing this way, and just watching us as we go by. You know, it's enjoying its meal and kind of just keeping an eye on us. But, um, and again, all around was this be these beautiful hues of of phosphorus, and even the water was phosphorescent. There was there was water that was supposed to be like you know in there and pools of water here and there and. And even the water had a constant phosphorescent glow. So it was quite a beautiful um, scene that um, when you got to that area of the mushroom forest. And again, I did a lot of drawings on those that you can see online. If you're interested in, um, actually one of the, uh, one of the guys who did the most thorough job of talking to me and, uh, um, posting images <clears throat> right after the ride opened um, um, was at a website called um, Disney and More um, um, by a gentleman named um, Alan um, Latte. He actually was the guy who uh, wrote the book on um, uh, the making of Euro Disneyland. He published a beautiful book book with pictures and and um, sketches and everything a great guy so 
he did a really good blog on that and there and then that that same content was on ended up being on uh, another site called Mouse Planet and uh, a number of other different places but if you're interested and I, I'm not sure exactly why it was uh, named or was called this but they um, if you go to Disney and more um, and Google that as well as tribute to Tom Thordarson, uh, you'll start, you'll see all the blogs. I think he did three different um, episodes. And uh, I always thought tribute sounded like I had died, but uh, <laughs> that wasn't what he chose to, to call it. But um, anyway, um, I always question how much I should say in each one of these episodes because I don't want people to get bored and lose interest. Because the next one, I think, is in itself a pretty in, uh, fun moment. But I'm not sure how I'm doing time-wise here. Um, so I may just call it on this one and break it up into the next episode. I'm just after I... After this episode, I'm just going to go ahead and record the next one. And maybe uh, uh, Kurt, my my partner in crime on this podcast, who you'll see, you, you, you hear uh, at the intro all the time, but you'll be seeing him more and more as we do our actual videos in the future. Um, uh, but uh, I'll um, give these to Kurt and maybe he might release them together or, 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 you know, within a few days over the coming weeks. I know it's the holidays and everything, but so I'll end it right here. Uh, and I hope you look forward to episode seven. It's kind of a fun one.